Romans chapter 4, we'll be starting right there at the beginning. Before we do, uh, for those of you who do not know me, uh, or know my family at least, I have, my wife Amy and I, we have three kids in our family. Uh, Ella is the oldest, she's 10. Hudson is the middle one, he is 8, turning 9 next week. And then Hadley, our youngest, is 6. And uh, so we've got these three kids. I grew up in a family of all boys. Ella was the first girl in the Moss family in 46 years. Um, and so it was this kind of big shock and something that took some adjustment to. Uh, but Hudson doesn't have kind of my story. He is, he's the only boy in the family, uh, the only of the siblings there. And so that means that whenever I get home, oftentimes Hudson is dying to play something with me. Uh, to do something boyish, something that his sisters won't do with him, whether that's wrestle or play uh, soccer or play basketball, or tonight we just threw a football around for a little bit. Hudson loves getting to just do something like that to get that kind of energy out that he, that, uh, he hasn't got to do all day. And so a lot of times we'll play stuff. We'll play mostly more than anything we play basketball. He really loves basketball. And so we'll play, and sometimes we're just goofing off together, but a lot of times against each other. It's a competition, right? And so we have a great time. Hudson loves playing, but he doesn't just love playing. He also loves winning. Um, just, like, just like most people, when he plays, he wants to win. And so, uh, unfortunately for Hudson, he's half my size, right? And so it's tough sometimes to win um, whenever you're playing against someone twice your size, especially in basketball when the rim is at my forehead height, right? You know? and, uh, and so Hudson finds a lot of ways to gain advantages, like, you know, flagrant fouls and stuff like that on the basketball court. But one of his big uh, tactics that he likes to use is just at the end of the game, just completely changing the rules if it, if it helps suit his, uh, it helps suit his cause a little bit. So, you know, we'll be playing to 10. Uh, I get to 10, and then when I get to 10, he decides, I don't know, actually, we were playing to 15, Dad. We're playing to 15, right? And so I get to 15, 20, we're playing to 20. Um, or if we're playing and I, like, barely beat him, uh, I beat him, you know, 10 to 9, he goes, no, 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 the rule is whenever somebody scores the last point, the other person gets one chance to shoot a free shot, and if they hit that shot, then it goes into overtime, right? So he, he always has, like, this extra rule that he adds on to make sure he he can win. Um, and, and there's something that's kind of funny about that, but that's not going to work very well in life. People don't like it when you change the rules to suit your own needs and your own desires, what you want. Um, we, we've told you as we've been walking through this that one of the greatest, the big questions that the book of Romans, that Paul is seeking to answer in the book of Romans, is can God be trusted? Specifically on these two fronts. Um, if Paul's gospel, what he's preaching is true, it leaves open these two things. Uh, first of all, um, how, is God, uh, how is God being a judge of integrity? Can we trust his integrity? If, if he's supposed to be a judge who always punishes sin and always makes sure that justice is done, but now Paul's preaching this gospel that he's just forgiving a bunch of people and he just kind of forgives them of all their sins. How can that be fair? How can he forgive people and be just at the same time? And, and last week we answered, we, we looked at the, one of the major answers to that question, which is in Romans 3, where Paul says that Jesus Christ became for us a propitiation. That is this, he is this sacrifice of atonement that took the penalty for our sins. Therefore, God was able to punish your sins like he's supposed to, like a good and just judge. But he punishes them in Jesus so that you are able to be forgiven. Which is this amazing, beautiful truth. And it's, it's so big and, and so important. If you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that one on the, on, on the podcast there. Just because I think it's such a critical passage. But the second big question of God's trustworthiness has to do with His faithfulness to the people of Israel. The covenant that He made to the people of Israel. Um, the issue becomes this, that... 2,000 years before Paul writes Romans, God had called this man named Abraham and said, Abraham, I want you to follow me, and if you will follow me, then you and your descendants after you I will make into my chosen people, my treasured possession, my covenant nation, this nation that I'm going to be in covenant with and grow with. And, and those people, the Jewish people, the people of Israel, were God's people. And they were marked by, by their adherence to the law, 
Okay, he gives them the law through Moses, and they keep that. And by circumcision, this, this religious ritual that he gave to Abraham and his family, says, this is what marks people as my people. And for 2,000 years, the case had been that those who belonged to God were Jewish people, faithful to the law, circumcised, which set them apart from the rest of the world. And everybody else was out. But Paul has been preaching that what sets you apart as God's people is faith. Faith in the new Messiah, the only true Messiah, Jesus Christ, who died for your sins and rose from the grave. And he's been saying that anybody can be a part of God's people by that faith, Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised. Um, And so this is what marks these people. Look at what he said, actually, in our passage last week. Romans 3, 28 through 30. He says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So this leads to this question, or this this issue. Either Paul is crazy and a heretic, he's made up this false belief about God, or God has all of a sudden, after 2,000 years, changed the rules. Like towards the end of the game, he came in and switched it all up, and it's been this way for 2,000 years, and now uh, things are different. And, And by the way, there's a lot of people who believe that today, that for the Old Testament, God operated one way, and if you want to be a part of God's people in the Old Testament, you need to be a Jew who is circumcised and keeping the law, and that's how you were part of God's covenant people. But then in the New Testament, God switched it, and now it's by faith in Jesus Christ. That's kind of the belief. But if that is true, then that leaves us with this question, how do we know He's not going to switch it on us again? I mean, he did it after 2,000 years. What's to say that he's not going to change the rules all over again? And this is the question that Paul has to be able to answer if he's going to move forward in his proclamation of the gospel. How does this not make God a liar? How does this not make God a rule changer like my son Hudson? Or, or how does that make Paul not just somebody who's trying to switch the rules to suit his own needs? That is what chapter 4 is designed to do. So, let's read this together. Chapter 4, starting in verse 1, says this, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So here's what Paul's going to do to be able to address this question. He says to his opponents who may be listening, all right, so you say that I'm changing the rules after 2,000 years. Fine. Let's go back 2,000 years. Let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to where it all started with this one man named Abraham or Abram at the time. And let's talk about Abraham and how he was declared to be righteous before God. How he became a part of God's people. He says this line in verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, pause, that's exactly what the Jewish rabbis of Paul's day proclaimed. That the reason Abraham was justified, the reason he belonged to God, is because he was a perfect law keeper. Because he did all the right things. Because he was a really, really good and righteous man. And that's why he belonged to God. That's why God wanted him on his team and called him to set him apart. Um, And so this is the thing. But Paul is going to argue against some of these uh, things here. He actually says, if he... Uh, If he was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. I think what Paul is saying there is, but let's be real here. Um, He can't, uh, Abraham might be able to boast about his works in front of other people, but, but there is no amount of works that Abraham can do to be able to boast before God to be able to make himself right. He says, let's, let's be honest. Let's look at the scriptures here. And so that's what he says in verse three. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That verse right there that he quotes is Genesis 15:6 and it's key. He uses this here, he also uses it in the book of Galatians to make this same kind of point. And he will allude to this 
to this verse and this idea over and over and over again. But before we can go any further with where Paul's argument is headed, we need to give you just a quick rundown of Abraham's story. Those of you who were here with us last year as we walked through Genesis will recognize and know most of these, but let me just give you kind of the high points, these these three kind of critical moments uh, in Abraham's life amongst a number of them. The first one is in Genesis 12. And in Genesis 12 is when God first appears to, his name at the time was Abram, which means exalted father. He appears to Abram, and he says to this man, Abram, who is not a godly man, by, by, by what we can tell, he comes from an idol-worshipping region and an idol-worshipping family, and, and from everything we can look, it would seem like he is an idol-worshipper himself and not a godly man. And God says to this man, Abram, I want you to leave your father uh, and his household and, and where he's from. I want you to leave your land, and I want you to go to the land that I am calling you to. And if you will do that, Abram, I will bless you, and I will make a nation out of you, and I will bless the world through you. And so uh, Abram uh, thinks on this and and wants to do this. The problem is this. We're told just a few verses earlier in Genesis 11 that Abram's wife, Sarah, or Sarai, was barren, that she was unable to have children, which means he can't make a nation out of Abram. You can't make a nation out of a man if you can't even make a family out of him. If he can't have kids, he can't have descendants. But Abram chooses to trust and put his faith in this God that has just appeared to him, to God's promise, and he goes. The next uh, big moment comes in Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, uh, God comes to him again and says, I will reward you greatly. I'm going to bless you. He kind of renews this. I'm going to make a great nation of you. And Abram says to him, listen, I don't know. He doesn't say, I'm not saying it won't happen. He's just saying, I don't know how this is going to work. I still don't have any kids. And I'm not getting any younger. And my wife's not getting any younger. I I don't see how this is going to work. And God calls him outside and says, come outside. And he says, look up at the stars, Abram. He says, count them if you can, which of course he can't. And he says, this is what your descendants will be like. I'll give you as many descendants as you see stars in the heavens. Um... And, so th- and, and, and then it says this in Genesis 15, 6. This is where this verse comes in. And Abram believed Yahweh, and he, that is God, Yahweh, counted it to him or credited it to him as righteousness. Because Abram believed the promise that God had made to him, even though it seemed strange. Um, the next big moment comes in Genesis 17. Now, at this point, Abram is 99 years old, all right? He was 75 when he was first called. He's 99 years old. He's as good as dead. And God comes to him and once again renews this promise to him. And he changes his name from exalted father to father of a multitude. Abraham is the new name. And Abraham father saying that I will make a great multitude from you. I will bring a multitude of nations, many nations from you, Abraham. And, and he gives him this, and then he gives him this other sign of the covenant, which is circumcision. He says, and this will be the sign between you and your offspring and me, that every male in your household and from here on out will be circumcised as a sign that they are set apart as my chosen people, set apart to me. Alright, so this is the big series of events, and as long as we keep this in mind, it will help make sense of what we're going to hear. So go back to Romans 4 where Paul quotes from Genesis 15, 6. He uses that term. He says, For um, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That word count, in the Greek, the word is logizomai. All right? Logizomai. And it, is a, it was an accounting term. Um, but it doesn't just mean like to add up and come to a total. It, it meant that once you have that total, it, it meant to like... Um, make an entry into a ledger or an account with that number, right? So if I owe a company or owe a group $100, my account shows that I'm $100 in debt. But then if I send in $100, if $100 is paid, then that, that money is legizomide to my account. It is credited to my account. So now I have no debt because this has been counted. Now, if I have a $100 debt, and I send in, or someone else sends in on my behalf, $150, now not only is the debt gone, but actually there has been a credit, a $50 credit given, put on my account. This, I think, is closer to the idea that Paul is talking about. 
that not, not only is Abraham or our uh, sin taken away, so we're no longer in debt, we're not just at neutral, we're now actually um, in, the, um, we're in the black, actually now. We are now credited with something, which is righteousness. It is counted to us. So we're not $1,000 in debt, we have a million dollars in our account now. That's what the idea that is being kind of spoken here um, about Abram, that God credited righteousness to his account. Um, but here is the big point that Paul is trying to make here. When does, when does God credit righteousness to Abram's account? What causes it? it? Is it when Abram faithfully obeys all the law? Is it when Abraham does all the good and right things? Is it when he's circumcised? He says, no, no. He is credited righteousness when he has faith. Faith is what brings about this righteousness for him. And this is a really important thing. What Paul is stating here in Romans 4 is that God has not changed the rules at all. That from the very beginning of the Jewish faith, people were saved by just that, faith. From the very first person that God called when He started it, that person was saved not by his actions, not by following all the dietary restrictions of the law, not by circumcision, but by faith. And so Paul's saying, I'm not changing anything. In fact, I'm holding to the truth, to the foundation of what God has always been about and what the Jewish faith has always been about from the beginning. This is a really important idea. Uh, verse 4 says this, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So here Paul just lines out the difference between when someone works for it, it's not a gift. It is something that is, it's a paycheck. It's a salary. It's, it's something that's deserving. But what God gives is not that. God gives gifts to us, something that we do not deserve. It is given as a gift. Actually, that word, it says counted as a gift. That word there, gift, is charis, which is grace. It's the word that we translate grace over and over again, which will come up a lot. And, and Paul in chapter 4 uses two incredible descriptions of God. Um, amazing descriptions of God, and one of them is here. He calls him the God who justifies the ungodly. That is a huge phrase to describe what God is. And, and actually, Romans 5 will begin to unpack a little bit more of the beauty behind that idea. God who justifies the ungodly. For now, we're going to move forward. Verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes from Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Uh, I don't know if you remember this. At the beginning of our text last week, Romans 3.21, Paul says, I'm going to tell you about the righteousness that is revealed in the gospel. And he says, it is a righteousness that is apart from the law. That is, you don't get it through the law. But he says, but the law and the prophets bear witness to it. That is, the Old Testament, Jewish people, your scriptures have been pointing to this from the beginning if you had your eyes open to it. And what he just did right here, the law was the first five books of the, pro uh, of the Old Testament and the prophets was everything else. And what he just did is he just showed how the law bears witness to this in Genesis uh, in Genesis 15:6, and then he shows how the prophets bear witness to this by Psalm 32. Abraham is proof of this. David is proof of this. That um, this righteousness is something that God is being revealed through the gospel, but it was there in the Old Testament as well. Verse 9, Is this blessing then, the blessing he's talking about, is the blessing of being accepted by God, of God crediting righteousness to our account. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe 
without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who are also walking the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So he keeps using this word count, legizomai, credited. It actually gets used 11 different times in this chapter. It is one of the keys in this. Um, But he makes a really, really interesting statement here. He says, we've been saying that it is by faith. Now the question, Paul says, is it by faith only for the Jewish people the circumcised people, or does this, does this still um, exclude the Gentile people, or the, can they be a part of it too? And then what, what Paul does is he walks them back to the Abraham story, and he goes, I just quoted to you from Genesis 15:6, which is where it says that God credited righteousness to Abraham. And then he goes, but when did circumcision enter the picture? Genesis 17, which means... If you take the two categories of people that the Jews had, they had Jewish and Gentile, circumcised and uncircumcised. And for most of their history, they said, uncircumcised is out, circumcised is in, the Jewish people are in. What Paul says is actually, the very first person that you considered to be in, Abraham himself, he was in the second category. When God declared him to be righteous by faith, it was before he had entered into the covenant of circumcision. It was before he had set himself apart. And that circumcision was only a seal of the righteousness that God had already given to him. It was only a sign of what had already happened. So he says, this thing that you've been leaning on for years, not saying it wasn't a significant thing, not saying it wasn't important, but it came after faith did. Faith was at the beginning, from the beginning, um, all the way through. And so he says this, that Abraham was the father of all the Jewish circumcised law-keeping people, but Paul is now saying this, that he's actually the father of anyone who has faith, Jew or Gentile. He's not just the father of the Jewish people, biological, which means, okay, um, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have placed your faith in him, then when God called Abraham out of his tent on that one starry night, and said, look up at the stars um, and know that your descendants will be as numerous as this. That like one of those stars was you. One of those stars was lit up representing you because you were one of those descendants that God talked about. Jew or Gentile, if you have faith in Christ, you were one of the many descendants that was promised to Abraham long ago. Verse 13 says this, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. I'll be honest, when I first read this, was studying this, this was the most confusing section of this chapter. I had a hard time tracking Paul's reasoning here and, and what he's getting at, especially in 15. But what Paul's saying here is, if it's only the law keepers, those who are perfect adherents of the law, who get to be in on God's promise, then first of all, faith is null and void. It doesn't count for anything because it doesn't matter what you believe. It only matters that you're obeying all the right stuff. But second, he says, actually, the promise itself is void because no one can actually do that, is what I believe he's saying here. Paul will get into this in Romans 7 and Romans 8 a little bit more. And that is to say that the law, all the law can do, it, it had its place and it was really important, but all the law can do is tell you the kind of person you're supposed to be. What it can't do is help you be that person. It can tell you what God expects. It can tell you what is demanded of you. It has no power in and of itself to cause you to be that person. You need something else to do that. And so all the law can really do is lead you to wrath. All it can do is lead you to show you where you're coming up short and and give you more and more rules that you're going to just keep breaking. And so this is not the uh, direction. This is not what we're hoping for. And so Paul says in verse 16, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, 
but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That is the second incredible description of God that Paul uses here. He is the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that are not. And it is because he is this kind of God that Abraham is able to have this kind of faith. Verse 19. Actually, verse 18. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. And he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old. And when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew, he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. The kind of faith that Abraham had was a kind of faith that trusted God to deliver on his promises even when it seemed impossible trusted that God would do the impossible. Um, we, uh, that, that he would actually, he says he brings life from the dead. He, he calls into existence things that are not. So you have these two old people with virtually like dead reproductive systems. They have no ability to bring forth by themselves children, but God calls into existence the things that are not. We, we talked about this last year when we were in Genesis 22. Um, this line, when God shows up to Abraham and says, this time next year you're going to have a kid. And Sarah's listening in, on the inside of the tent from nearby, and she laughs because that's how ridiculous this idea is, that she could actually have a kid and that Abraham would have a son. That's uh, just ridiculous. And God calls her on it. Um, God goes, well, why did Sarah laugh in there? And uh, she's, she comes out, she's like, I was not laughing, I promise. Um, and, and it says, the Lord says, no, you did laugh, I heard it. Um, which is like a terrible, you know that awkward thing when someone catches you like saying something you should have or laughing? Um, you know, it's like added up a little bit when it's the almighty creator of the universe catches you laughing awkwardly or something like that, right? Um, and that happens to Sarah, but then this is what he says. And this is, we talked about this, this sentence, which I think is so important. Is anything too hard for Yahweh? And the answer is no. Nothing. There is nothing that He cannot do. He is able to call into existence the things that are not. He is able to bring life from the dead, which Paul is hinting at something there when he makes that statement. Um, and here he goes in 23, 25, wrapping up, he says, but the words that it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So he says this, that the truth of Genesis 15.6 did not just apply to Abraham, it applies to us as well, to those of us who believe and trust that God has delivered on His promise to do the impossible. That is, to, to raise His Son back from the dead. Those of us who believe in those things. I mentioned earlier uh, that this word, legizomai, to count, that it's key for the, the chapter of, of uh, to Romans chapter 4. It's mentioned 11 different times. There is one word actually that outpaces even that word in this book. Actually, it's two words, but they come from the same root. Have you caught what they are yet? Faith and believe. Those two words actually together, and, and they come from the same actually. Uh, faith is, I'm sorry, we'll go with believe, is... Pastuo uh, is the word, pastuo, okay? And then it comes from this word, pastis, which is faith, okay? They come from the same idea. And this word comes up 15 different times, or these two words, believe and faith, come up 15 different times in this. And it is a huge word for Romans 4, and it is a huge word for uh, Romans as a whole. In fact, you will not be able to grasp 
what Romans is fully about if you do not understand these words and what sits at the root of them. And that is why in just a moment, Scott is going to get up and outline what we mean when we use these words to talk about how righteousness comes, not from what people thought it was for so long, but from this. That's what we'll talk about in just a couple minutes, but first we'll take a break. So, you've probably seen something like this. This is on my shelf uh, in my office. How many of you have one of these or seen one of these in your home? Okay, lots of you. Wow, more than I thought. So, I mean, tell me, take a moment, actually don't tell me, take a moment and think about what you, what you see when you, when you read this. Like when you see this in a home, when you see this on a bookshelf or, or on the top of a cabinet in the kitchen or, I don't know, randomly in a hallway somewhere, what goes through your mind when you see these words? These words you can buy. You can buy this at you can buy this at a Christian bookstore. You can buy this at any sort of home store, like a Hobby Lobby or anything else. Um, these these words are sold, and I think it's kind of interesting. I mean, I know why I have them in my office. Um, I'm not sure the person that bought them for me bought them for the reasons that I like to look at them for. Um, what what I see when I when I re, when I remember it, what I um, what I think about when I read these words. But what's interesting about this is it's really kind of, you can read this and you can think whatever you want. Um, I, I learned this lesson when I went to church in Colorado once. My family's on vacation. We decided to go visit this church. And um, it was a great church. They were super friendly. The, the, the pastor did a great job, or did a good job communicating. And, but one thing that, that he said that really stuck with me, and I've never forgotten, and because in that moment I realized I do the same thing. He was describing the gospel. And he said, you know, that's the whole point of the gospel. And then he goes in to explain it. And I, I kind of lean forward. Because anytime somebody is getting ready to explain the gospel, I, I'm curious how, what they're going to emphasize. What they're going to talk about. And he said, the gospel is about Jesus coming, that we may have life and have it to the full. And, that, and that's a verse. That's John 10.10. 10. So, that's scripture. And I thought, okay. And, but he didn't really go on to explain it. And then all of his illustrations involved hiking and mountain climbing and mountain, back, mountain bike riding and all the things that none of us get to do, that those people in Colorado get to do all the time. And I was kind of like, yeah, I wish I, had, I wish I had his life. His life sounds pretty cool. Sounds pretty full to me. And I started thinking like, man, I, I, I know what I what I believe about the gospel. I don't know what these people believe about the gospel, but he, he said it like, the gospel is Jesus coming to make our life full. And I just wondered, what do they think that means? And I realized, we've got to be really clear about our words. Like in my own ministry, I, I, countless times I've described things, I've never really, dis, never really explained them. I've just said the words. Jesus, you know, God is for you. I've never really explained what I mean by that, or, or even the song that we sing that says, um, God's never going to let us down. What do we mean by those things? And I realize it's really kind of left to the, to the interpretation of the reader or the hearer. And in this case, when it comes to a word like faith, um, it really can't be left to just us going, yeah, it's, it's kind of whatever I want it to be. So I want to talk about what this word means, because I think it's, it's one of those words, faith, and belief are words that we throw around, that our culture throws around. It's actually popular to, to, to have faith and to believe in things um, in, our, in, in our day. I mean, there was a time in which where science was a lot more, you know, of a thing. And it was like, ah, oh, faith, ah, bad, science, good. But I think we're kind of into this era where it's like, no, yeah, we should have faith. We should believe. We should, there are, there's, there's a lot of unknowns. And so I want to talk about what faith isn't first. Okay, so faith, first of all, isn't optimism. It's not optimism. George Michael wrote this song in 1987. None of you were alive. Um, George Michael was a part of this group called Wham. He broke away. His first big breakaway song, Faith. And I never knew what the song was about, but I remember the song. You know, you've got to have faith, faith, faith. So I go I read the lyrics this past week. Do you know what this song's about? It's about him dumping a girl because 
she's trying to hold him down by lover boy rules. And so he's got to have faith that he's going to find someone better. That's what it's about. It's about him dumping a girl so that he can find someone who will let him do what he wants and not tie him down. That's what it's about. That's faith for him. Um, and so this idea of faith as like wishful thinking or um, as just optimism permeates pop culture. And so phrases like just have faith, just believe, um, what they mean is believe that everything's going to work out. Believe that um, even though you're failing your class now, just believe that you're going to pass. And you will. Um, and then you have to glass over your eyes. And you will. Um, I heard a guy on a game show once, and he, and he was trying to win a million dollars by picking, by, by guessing which briefcase to pick to win a million dollars. And he kept saying, I believe, therefore I can't achieve. And he went home with nothing. And I just thought it was awesome. Um, so thinking optimistically based on a desire that everything will always work out is, is basing it on something that you really can't control. Now, the trick is with, with this one and even with the other ones is there's, there's some truth to this. There's some, if you just give up, oh, I'm never going to pass this class, why even try? Yeah, you're going to fail. There's some truth to, yeah, I need to believe that I got to keep doing things, that I can, you know, keep moving forward and i got to do my part. All that is good. But this, this kind of faith is a faith in faith. And, and it's not based on anything. Um, faith was never intended to be, the, to be the object, for it is nothing unless it is directed toward something that is trustworthy and true. Tim Keller says, It's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. So this, the, these words in the Bible... They're relational. It's a relational concept. Um, it's a, it, it, and its meaning is defined by the one it's directed toward. Its value is in the one it's attached to. So it's not optimism. It's also not irrational. Um, it's not irrational either. There, and there's a couple things under this. First of all, it's not uh, like this leap in the dark. It's not this, you just got to just... You don't, can't see where a step is. You just got to step and hope that there's something there. Um, that's not what faith is. But again, there's, there's a little bit of truth to this leap of faith thing. So in, in Hebrews 11, which is like the famous faith chapter, Hebrews 11 verse 1 says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Um, I think on the screen... Yeah, fast forward a couple, there it is, uh, and then you can go back. So, he says, it's, it's assurance of things hoped for and convict, conviction of things not seen. So, there's this element of, in fact, in, in Hebrews 11, God calls Abraham to go somewhere he didn't know where he was going. So, he was to trust that God was going to lead him somewhere where was good, and, and trust that God was leading him somewhere that he needed to be. But, and on and on and on. In, in throughout chapter 11, it's examples of, of what people did as they um, lived in faith. But it's not just a leap in the dark. It's, it's based on them responding to a promise-making God um, who they'd have experience with as they were like just following His commands. So it's all based on their relationship with Him and their experience with Him. It's not a leap in the dark. It's also not it's not the opposite of evidence-based truth. Sometimes I think um, a misconception of faith is just that, man, don't try to figure that out. It's too complicated. Just have faith. You know, you really can't know anything. You really can't figure it out. You just got to believe. And the truth is, there is a lot of rational evidence for things like the accuracy of the biblical manuscripts that we have. Back in the early 1900s, they discovered the, um, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they discovered several scrolls of different books of the Bible, and then they compared. They were thousands of years old. They compared them to what we have now, and they were virtually the same, with some minor little marks here and there, but like, identical to what we have now. Like the, 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 the accuracy of what we have is, is amazing. There's, there's rational evidence to the historical Jesus and all that he did and, and how he impacted the world and, 
there's, there's authors outside of the Bible that, that talk about Jesus and the things He did and, and how His followers and how they lived and how it impact, impacted the world. And so we're not asked to just check our brains at the door. It's not irrational. It's also not the opposite of works. It's not the opposite of works. Um, faith and works are often pitted against each other. Um, and, and the dangerous conclusion is that good works are the enemy of faith. And that's just absolutely not the case. Um, often works is associated with this works of the law thing, which, which for a Jewish person is, means just life under the system of the law, which the New Testament writers are constantly trying to get them to say, no, it's life in Christ, not life under the law. And so this, this good works is an is a enemy of faith is, is a false, false dichotomy. James 1 says, faith without works is dead. It's clear. Um, but the text that a lot of people use is it, Ephesians 2, 9, 2, 8, and 9, which I have a couple of screens over. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. You've, you've probably heard this. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. And the emphasis here is, is that God is the initiator and the sustainer of this salvation, not us. That there is no boasting that on anyone's part. That none of us will get to boast in, in because of our faith. That it's, it's grace, it's, it's gift. But what's interesting is the very next verse talks about good works. It says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. In other words, we're saved by grace. We cannot boast in our effort, but our faith in Jesus will lead us to do what we were created to do, which is good works. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, but, but, but um, faith is never alone. Good works always follow. So it's not the opposite of works. It's also not um, intellectual assent only. It's not studying for a test and checking a box and getting the answer right and you're good. Memorizing something and filling in a blank, and you're good. And in the early church, there was this um, heresy called Gnosticism. And Gnostics believed that you needed this secret knowledge, I guess. And the secret knowledge gave you access to these, spiritual, these unique spiritual realities and ultimately salvation. And, and it was deemed heresy. And so we don't have that kind of thing happening. We have something... It's almost opposite, but real similar. Uh, there, there's, in recent time, there's, there's been a movement called the Free Grace Movement. And in my opinion, um, it, it believes that salvation is simply this simple knowledge of what Jesus has done. Just knowing the facts about Him, agreeing that they happened, and that's enough. Instead of being a secret knowledge, it's a minimal knowledge of Jesus. It's, what do I, what's the least I need to do to get into heaven? Just say, Jesus is Lord and I'm good. Just, just believe the minimum and I'm in. And that's why we call it easy believism. We don't believe that's what the Bible is describing as faith and belief. And when you study this, this, this word in and, and all its forms, um, you see that knowledge is crucial. Um, and it's a crucial part of belief, but it doesn't stop there. It permeates the rest of us. It's, it's a whole life kind of thing. But the problem isn't in us changing the word or changing the meaning of the words change, words morph over time, but the, the problem isn't that we've just changed the definition of faith and belief and that's we just need to get back to a better definition. I think, honestly, I think, I think the problem is that we've reduced what the gospel is. When we reduce the gospel... We, re- we get a reduced view of faith. So the gospel is not just that God loves me. Um, in Acts, the, the book of Acts, which is following the gospels, it's the disciples taking the message of Jesus and spreading that good news and planting churches. So you have several uh, examples, and I'll, we'll read one here in just a little bit, several examples of uh, disciples and apostles preaching the gospel, explaining who Jesus is, but what's interesting is, I just looked this up again, I've known this, but I double-checked, the word love 
Never mentioned in 28 chapters of Acts. The word love is never mentioned. Isn't that interesting? So they're going around and they're explaining the gospel and they never once say, God loves you. Think about that. It's interesting. I'll explain what they do say. And it's, and it's a little different than how it's often presented in our day. It's not just that Jesus died for my sins so that I can go to heaven. So when, when, we, when we reduce the gospel to um, things uh, that deal with my personal salvation, then we get a faith that is more about personal virtues than it is about what um, the Bible seems to be describing it. So here's the gospel. And I have no idea if I put it in the right order. The gospel is the story of God making everything right through King Jesus. That's how I would describe it. If you, if you said, okay, give me a sentence, what's the gospel? That's what I would say. Now that sentence is going to need to be explained, and I'll explain it, but it's the story of God making everything right through Jesus, through King Jesus. So this story includes God creating, God making all things good, and, and having purpose and order. And God creating us and, and making us His image bearers and, and, and giving us this, this incredible responsibility to, to represent Him and carry out the things He's called us to do. But it also involves us taking what, what He gave us and using it for our own purposes. And, and, and all of us have done this. We spent the first three or four weeks of this year in Romans talking about this. All of us have done this. But then it, it involves God reaching down and establishing a covenant with, with Abraham and making promises to bless all nations through him and through his seed. And, and then we have this incredible thing we get to witness. It, all throughout the Old Testament, you get, to, you get to witness God's relationship with his people and how he treats his people and how he's faithful to his promises and faithful to his covenant and how he's... Um, trustworthy and how he's compassionate and how he's kind and merciful to sinful and rebellious people and how over and over and over his people reject him and he is faithful to his promises and faithful to his word and he shows mercy and grace over and over and then you have God fulfilling every promise in Jesus coming and I want to read um, a, a part of the Apostles' Creed that explains who Jesus is. And, and there's, a, there's a part in this Apostles' Creed that, I, that I'm going to argue tonight is, is rarely a part of the Gospel when we, when we talk about it. And it's a crucial part. And, and this part is going to help us understand what I believe faith is that, that Paul is describing. So here's the, the Apostles' Creed. Anybody grow up in a church where you, where you uh, recite the Apostles' Creed on a regular basis? So a few of you. Okay, um, our staff has been doing this prayer service uh, a few times a week, and and, and part of the services re- reciting the Apostles' Creed. It's been really good for me to to get to try to memorize it again. But it says this part about Jesus: I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and was born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. The third day He rose again. He ascended to heaven, and here it is, and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Those last two lines don't usually make it into, when someone asks us, what's the gospel? It usually focuses on what He's done and what He's done for us. It often isn't it, it doesn't end with him ascending to, to heaven, ascending to his rightful place as king. So I want to show you a couple different places in, in the Bible where, where this is mentioned and where it's emphasized. And I want to explain how this impacts our understanding of faith. So first is in Romans 1, uh, and we've already been there. You can turn there. I don't have the verses on the screen but because I, I want you to turn and look at them. Romans 1, verses 1 through 5. Um, Paul says, 
He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And then he goes on to explain quickly, just a synopsis of the gospel, he says. Which he promised beforehand through, the, through, through, his, holy, through his prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This idea of being of declaring Jesus to be the Son of God in power, Him being Christ and Lord, are big deals for Paul. Those words are associated with Him being King and having authority, ruling over. Here's another one, Philippians 2, 5-11. In Philippians, it says this, Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Then he goes on and he says, Therefore God has, ex- has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that, the, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's a big deal for Paul. It goes on and on about him coming down and and what He did for us then, but it goes right back into Him going up and what He's doing now. It's a big deal. Here's another one, and this comes in Acts. This is is Peter's um, sermon, and this is at the end of his long sermon in Acts 2 on, on the day of Pentecost. It says this. This is Peter talking. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Then He goes on, His last sentence right before the end is, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So, over and over, the, 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 the testimony of the apostles and the disciples in Acts is, Jesus is king. You guys crucified him. God made him king. Now what are you going to do? And, and so they go, what should we do, Paul or Peter? They were cut to the heart. They wanted to know. And he goes on to explain, believe, confess, repent, be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit. See, when the gospel is reduced to my personal salvation, faith is reduced to personal virtue. When the gospel is about God making everything right through the promised King Jesus because of His life and death and resurrection and ascension to the rightful place as authority, then we can see what Paul meant. So here's my, here's my definition of faith. Faith is allegiance to King Jesus. I like this word allegiance because we don't use it very often. It's not really a word that we throw around. We, we may sing the Pledge of Allegiance, or you may give the Pledge of Allegiance, I guess you don't, maybe you don't sing it. No, you don't sing it. Um, that's the national anthem you sing. But I guarantee you, if you talk to someone who's served um, in, in a war, someone who's fought for our country, and, and they may have all kinds of good or bad things to think about when they... When they, when they give the Pledge of Allegiance. But I, get, I guarantee you, they don't just brush right over it. It means something to them. And I think this word allegiance, um, I like it because it carries with it this, this uh, command of obedience. This, um, I'm pledging my life to. And it has words like reliability and active confidence and assurance and fidelity and commitment and a sold-out trust and a pledged loyalty. So this, this allegiance to, to Jesus is, is something that should affect all of us. It's not just something that we think about. It's not just something that we feel. It's something that we live out, that we act on. 
And that's what Paul's describing. This, this faith in Jesus is, is this allegiance in Jesus. You are saved by grace alone through allegiance alone. So, the question I have is, if, if faith is allegiance to Jesus, is He your King or not? Is He your King or not? Does He have authority over all of your life? Does He rule and reign in what you do with your body? Does He have access um, to take charge of what you think about? Do you allow Him to reign over your past, or are you still trying to hold on? Do you seek Him to take charge of your present circumstances, or are you still trying to control things? Does your future plans include Him? Or are you still searching for more? So I'd love to um, give you some practical things that you could do to live out your faith. I've been convinced lately that that really probably isn't that helpful. Um, That probably more than anything what I can do is, is help you see Him more. To help you see Him better. And so I want you to see the glory of Jesus. I want you to see who the Bible describes Him to be. This isn't just me saying, man, let me try to... How can I conjure up the best ideas about Jesus and, and help you understand those? No, these, these are things that the Bible describes about who Jesus is. Ready? So the glory of Jesus is the greatness of His transcendence mixed with the humility of His submission to God. It is His uncompromising justice next to His compassionate mercy. It is His majesty sweetened by His meekness. It is His perfect holiness integrated with faithful love. It is His equality with God and His deep reverence for God. In fact, this word, allegiance, could oftentimes be applied to Jesus' allegiance to God throughout Scripture. It is His unchanging character and His never-ending presence. He promised in Matthew 28 that He would be with us through the end of the age. He is the perfect blend of grace and truth. That's John 1.14. And though He was worthy to be called good, the only one worthy to be called good, He was patient enough to suffer evil. He has sovereign dominion over the world, that's Colossians 1, clothed with a spirit of obedience to God. He had wisdom that baffled the scribes and gentleness that was loved by children. The Gospels describe Him as having command over the weather, um, telling demons to flee, and and was able to heal diseases and sickness by simply speaking words and, and touching them. He's called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's Isaiah 9. So the question is, what could you and I possibly be going through that that He doesn't have supreme reign over? What could you and I be struggling with that He hasn't already conquered? What could you need that He can't provide? My hope is that you know, through this, this study through Romans, that you begin to see Jesus for who He truly is. And that by seeing Him rightly, it, it causes you to act and respond appropriately. He lived a perfect life because we can't. He died a sacrificial death so we don't have to. And He resurrected back to life so that someday we can too. We were dead in our sins without Him. We are alive in righteousness with Him. That's next week, by the way. We have victory over sin because of Him. That's in a few weeks, by the way. He is our hope. He is our strength. And He is our life. And He deserves our allegiance. So let me pray. God, thank You for 
Jesus. He's a way bigger deal than I could ever communicate. Me describing him doesn't do him justice. All right, so I pray, God, and I need your grace, and we need your grace to help us see him more clearly. So God, thank you for your patience with us when we turn from you and chase after things in this world that, that shimmer and that are new and exciting that, and that don't last at all. God, I pray that we'd be satisfied in knowing you, um, that we would come to know you as Lord and Savior. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like for you to take um, a couple minutes. We don't do this enough, but I'd like for you to take a couple minutes. Just based on the last couple weeks, I think some really big things have been described and talked about. And so, whether it's writing, finishing writing some things down or just praying, but just sit for a couple minutes and then, um, then I'll close us out.